Well, I read about a nine-year-old boy named Mark. True story. Uh, Mark's mother got a phone call about Mark in the middle of the afternoon. And uh, it was the teacher from Mark's third grade class. She said, Mrs. Smith, something unusual happened today in your son's class. Your son did something that surprised me. And the mother began to be worried. The teacher said, this morning as I was teaching a lesson on creative writing, as I always do, I tell a story of the ant and the grasshopper. The ant works hard all summer and stores up plenty of food, but the grasshopper plays all summer and does no work. Then winter comes. The grasshopper begins to starve because he has no food, so he begins to beg, please, Mr. Ant, you have food, please let me eat too. And then I said, boys and girls, your job is to write the end of the story. Your son Mark raised his hand and said, teacher, may I draw a picture? Well, yes, Mark, if you'd like, but first you must write the ending of the story. Well, as in all the years past, most of the students said the ant shared his food uh, with the grasshopper, and both the ant and the grasshopper lived. A few children wrote and said, no, Mr. Grasshopper, you should have worked in the summer. Now I have just enough food for myself, so the ant lives and the grasshopper dies. But your son ended it in a completely different way. He wrote, So the ant gave all of his food to the grasshopper. The grasshopper lived through the winter, but the ant died. And the picture that Mark drew at the bottom was simply a picture of three crosses. The sharp little third grade kid, wasn't it? Named Mark. Well, let's turn to Mark's gospel. Because what this little boy named Mark illustrated in his wonderful story, the Gospel of Mark also illustrates, as we'll look at together. The test of true love is identified as a willingness to sacrifice. The last couple of weeks, we've looked at Jesus beginning the Passion Week as he begins his last few days on the journey to the cross. He's in Jerusalem, he's entered with the triumphal entry, entered the temple, looked around, and then left for the day on that Palm Sunday, came back Monday morning on his way, saw a fig tree in leaf without any fruit on it, and he cursed the fig tree. And we came to see that that was basically a representation of Jesus saying the same thing to Israel that bore no fruit, that they would, uh, that they would also be cursed. And then Jesus comes back the next day, on Tuesday, and we have quite a long day where Jesus begins this, these conversations in the temple with the leaders there. And, and we saw last week where he began to basically lock horns with the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They're asking, by what authority do you do this? And then he gives them this parable that we read in Mark chapter 12, the beginning of Mark 12, about uh, the man that planted a vineyard. And so, Mark chapter 12, verse 13, we have another group that come up to Jesus and, again, try to, to trap him. And so that's, um, that's where we are now. Verse 13, Mark chapter 12. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, 
but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? That seems out of left field, doesn't it? Here we are talking about religious things in the temple, and all of a sudden, the Pharisees and Herodians show up, and they kind of butter Jesus up with this flattery, which they've meant none of it, because we're told that their whole goal is to trap him in something that he says. And they ask a question about taxes. Your translation may simply say taxes. The new, inter- the, uh, new American standard here says poll tax. But the word is actually borrowed from a Latin word that refers to a census or a tax that sort of is connected to a census. And what that means is that every individual person has to pay this tax. And this tax dated all the way back from the time when Jesus was a boy. Uh, Judea became a Roman province after Archelaus was such a lousy king, a lousy Herod king, that Rome said, all right, we're done with these Herods. We're going to now have procurators that rule over Judea. And so Judea became a Roman province, and at that point, every year, every person was taxed. It was a census, but it was also a way that, um, that the emperor's treasury got fattened. Well, you can imagine that as a Jew, you wouldn't like this. And the Pharisees were a group of religious Jews that didn't like this at all. The Pharisees sort of came up into existence from between the Testaments. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was a period of 400 years in which very significant things happened in world history, but particularly the Pharisees rose up. And initially, they were great. I mean, seriously great. Their passion was for the Word of God, to stay true to God. But then as time goes on, as things normally happen, they began to slip. And the traditions of men were raised and elevated to be on the same par with Scripture. So where now, as Jesus locks horns with them, uh, the Pharisees are full-on legalists, saying not only do you have to obey the Word of God, but also the traditions of men if you are to be accepted by God. The Pharisees hated this tax because they did not like Gentile rule over Israel. They wanted, of course, to be completely independent. And so they were asking this tax, the question about this tax from a religious perspective. Uh, And Jesus, having claimed to be the Messiah, how in the world would the Messiah, who was to rule over Israel, say that we should pay tax to a foreign government? So the Pharisees figured they had Jesus trapped. For one reason, the Herodians, on the other hand, were sympathetic to the government. They, by their very name, you can tell, were sympathetic to the Herods or to the kings, to those installed by Rome to rule. And uh, and Antipas was the, the Herod of the time during this time. So the Herodians were for the tax. The Pharisees were against the tax. And so they come together to trap Jesus saying, whose side are you on? Should we pay the tax or should we not pay the tax? Either way, they figure they had him. So look at Jesus' response, verse 15. They say, shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. 
And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Why were they amazed? Because Jesus used a coin to illustrate truth. Now, I've copied for you in your handout. You should have a picture of this coin. There it is. That coin, you can see, obviously has two sides. On one side is the question that Jesus asked. Whose picture is this? And you've got a picture right there of Tiberius Caesar. But there's two sides to the coin. The other side that you can see there has a picture of what are called the Vestal Virgins. These are young ladies whose job it was to serve full-time in the temple that basically honored the divinity of Caesar. So on one, high, on one side of the coin, figuratively speaking and literally, you have Caesar as the ruler. On the other side of the coin, literally, you have Caesar as divinity. And so when Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, He's literally saying the word render, it's a bit archaic, we don't say that much anymore. It basically means to give, specifically to give back. It's, not, it's something that you're giving back to someone to whom it belongs. And so to give or to render to Caesar, you are giving back to Caesar what is due him as a governing official. We know from Romans chapter 13 that this is still our obligation as citizens of any country is to pay taxes. And so is the tax legitimate? Jesus says it is legitimate. Render to Caesar, give back to Caesar what, what's appropriate to give to him. But then he also basically, and I wonder if he flipped the coin. We're not told if he flipped the coin, but everyone knew what was on the other side. When he said, but give back to God what is God's. You're not worshiping Caesar as divinity, but only God as divinity. So basically, Jesus answered both of these opponents with a fatal blow. They weren't, able to, um, they weren't able to trap him. He answered really well. Well, evidently, this was Q&A day in the temple, and another group comes up to Jesus to try to stump the chump, as they say. But he didn't fall for it. Look at this next group, verse 18. Some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died leaving no children. The second one married her and died leaving behind no children, and the third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died. Also, I love that. I never forget hearing Howard Hendricks read this uh, passage one time, and he said, and last of all, the woman died. And, he, and basically he's saying, can you blame her? <laughs> like, man, after all that, finally she dies. Last of all, the woman dies. She was exhausted. But here's the question, verse 23. In the resurrection of course, which the Sadducees didn't believe. When they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or 
the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Notice he says like angels, not angels, but like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Notice he says you're greatly mistaken. In verse 24, he says you're mistaken, and then he says you are greatly mistaken. And they are mistaken, verse 24, for two reasons. First, they do not understand the Scriptures. Literally, the text says they do not know the Scriptures. Honestly, in our lives, it's very much the same. Most of the time that we are mistaken about something is because we just don't know what the Bible says about it. And if you've got, if you're scratching your head about something in life, you're wondering, what are we to do? What direction should we go? What, what does the Lord have to say about this? What's God's will for me in this particular situation? The answer is, what does the Bible say? Because what the Bible says is what God says. Peter says in 2 Peter that we have in the Bible all we need for life and godliness in his precious promises. So if you don't know what you're to do, read the word. And if you're not sure where to read in the Word, maybe ask some good counsel of where to read. Because more than likely, by nature of the principle of Scriptures, it gives direction for you, for us, for life. Not only do that, they did not understand the Scriptures, but they didn't understand the power of God. It's one thing to know the Bible, it's another thing to believe it. Because the Bible says some pretty incredible things, not the least of which is resurrection. Do you believe it? Do you believe in the power of God? And then he tells us something that otherwise we wouldn't know, and that is that when we are in the resurrection, there is not marriage, but we are like the angels. I, I'll never forget, there was a, a lady, one of, a family member of mine, years and years ago, I remember she talked about, you know, when people die, they become angels. And unfortunately, that's a pretty common thought. You know, when, when, you, when you die, you become an angel. I mean, look at It's a Wonderful Life. Who doesn't love Clarence, the Wonderful Angel? There's so much bad theology in that movie, but it's such a great movie. <laughs> such a great movie. It just theology's terrible, especially your angelology. But you don't, we don't become angels. Angels are angels. Saints are saints. And, uh, but we are like them in that, that we are wholly dedicated to God. Our entire being is. But notice Jesus proves the resurrection by quoting from Exodus. The Sadducees did not believe all of the Bible, all the Old Testament. They only believed the Pentateuch. That makes it pretty easy for your quiet time, doesn't it? You only got five books to read. Only got five books to study. The rest of us have 66. But the Sadducees only believed five. And Jesus proved the resurrection from their own scriptures from the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And he proved it with a simple thing like a verb tense. The Lord said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was, but I am. When he spoke to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for a long time. And yet, even though dead, they were alive. 
Jesus was basically saying they still are alive, therefore the resurrection is to come. He proved it by quoting from their own scriptures. So the Sadducees basically now they're shut down. And finally a scribe comes to Jesus. We just got one of them now. I wonder if he was sent or if he just came on his own. Seems to be more that he came on his own because he seems very genuine. Verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Once again, Jesus quotes from the Pentateuch, quotes from Deuteronomy, a verse that has traditionally been called the Shema or the Shema in Hebrew, from a word that basically means to hear. It's the first word that Jesus refers to here. Listen, hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. Notice a couple of things about the details of this. The Lord is our God. He's corporately our God, all of us. But he is also your God, individually, personally. The Lord, or literally Yahweh, the divine name revealed to Moses, is our God, and we're told he is one. What does that mean? It, well, it doesn't contradict the Trinity, the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, which is you can discern in the Old Testament a number of ways, but very specifically it's taught in the New Testament, that God is one doesn't contradict the idea of the Trinity because even in God's name, Elohim, which is a plural, uh, a plural proper noun in Hebrew, the little I am on the end, anytime you see the I am, it's referring to something that's plural. And so God, Elohim, it really depends on the context, how you translate that. Is it God or God's? The context has to tell you. And when it's referring to our God, it's singular, but yet his name has this plural element to it. And for this verse to say that our God is one, which is, which is fascinating. He doesn't say the Lord is one, but Elohim is one. And the word that he uses there for one is the same word that's used back in Genesis regarding Adam and Eve, when the two shall become one flesh. So there is this plurality of Adam and Eve, and yet somehow there's unity in, in the, the majesty and, and the beauty of the one flesh relationship in marriage is an illustration of the Trinity, in that you have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are, two, who are three persons, but one God. It's a mystery. So what's Jesus' point? What, what is it saying then when it says that God is one? To say that God is one is to say that he's unique. He's the one and only. That there's none other like him. That he alone is God. It's the fundamental truth of Judaism, and then really it's the fundamental truth of the Bible. But it's followed very quickly by the fundamental command. This God is a God you should love. And the love of God is expressed in all of who we are. Notice the details once again of verse 30. 
You shall love the Lord your God. So now we're getting very personal. How do you love the Lord your God? He says, with all your heart. Our English kind of gives us a, a, a step back here. So let's take a step forward and look at what the details of the original language say. The word with is literally the, the word from or from out of. It's, it's talking about the source of your love. From out of, and then it says all your heart. Uh, the word for all is halos. We get our word holocaust, which means burnt whole. A complete destruction is a holocaust. The word here for all is the word whole. So literally, you could translate this. It's wooden, which is why we don't translate it this way, but you can understand it this way. The love the Lord your God from out of your whole heart. The source of your love is sourced from your whole heart. And then the word and is there in the original. And from out of your whole soul. And from out of your whole mind, and from out of your whole strength. Every part of who you are, Jesus says, without exception, has to have at its taproot the love of God. This one God who is our God corporately, our God personally, is a God that we are to love with every aspect of our being. The heart in Hebrew is the seat of the emotions and of your will. So you love God from that part of who you are. The soul is the center of your personality. In fact, the Hebrew word means the whole person. The Hebrew word nefesh really encompasses the whole person. It's not just the immaterial part of you. It's all of who you are. The mind, of course, reflects what you think about, what you dwell on. And, of course, your might or your strength is speaking of your physical body. To offer your body to God as a living sacrifice, like Paul says in Romans 12. Now, I don't know that it's necessary to split hairs on the meanings of all these words, especially when you talk about your heart and soul. What's really the difference between that? Or your mind, uh, the immaterial part of who you are. I don't know that we can really split the hairs there so much. And that's not the goal. The goal is to understand that however you want to split the hairs, all the hairs, all of who you are, is devoted to loving God. Loving God. God is the single most important thing in your life. How do you do that? Well, the, very, the commands in the Bible were the means by which you could do it. All the other commands. Jesus said elsewhere, whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. So do you love God? There's one really easy way to tell. Do I love God? How can you tell? Do I obey him? Well, we all fall short there, don't we? We all fall short of that love. But the reality is that's why we're given the command, so that we'll choose to love him. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said it's to love God. But he wasn't done. Look at verse 31. The second, he says, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. Interesting how he phrased that, isn't it? There's no greater commandment than these. The these is, refers to love God, love your neighbor. The commandment is love. So basically, he summarizes the whole Old Testament in one word, love. 
love God, and love people. Fred Rogers the, of the Mr. Rogers neighborhood, he said something that I, I love this uh, phrase. He says, life is deep and simple. And what our society gives us is shallow and complicated. Shallow and complicated. But life is deep and simple. I think about Jesus' command of love when I think about that. Jesus said, love others as, as you love yourself. How do you love yourself? Well, you don't love yourself by looking in the mirror and go, ooh, I love you, I love you, I love you. <laughs> that's not what he means. Though, in effect, sometimes it seems like that's what we do, isn't it? <clears throat> it wasn't that funny. <laughs> How do you love yourself? You love yourself by caring for yourself. Every one of us probably has bathed. Every, now that's funny. Every one of us is probably taking care of ourselves physically. It, we do it naturally. It comes natural to us to love ourselves in practical ways. Jesus is saying not that you shouldn't love yourself, but in the way that you love yourself, which you should do, make sure that you're doing that with others. That loving others is not just saying, I love you but it is living in such a way that there is a practical benefit to that love, just like your own self-love has a practical benefit. Jesus answers the scribe's question in a very practical way. Now look at the scribe's response, verse 32. The scribe said, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one neighbor as, as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. The, the chump had not been stumped. He had, he had turned it to where now Jesus is clearly the one in control. So notice verse 35, now Jesus goes on the offensive, and Jesus begins to ask the questions. Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Now, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110. So take just a second and turn back to Psalm 110. Because we're going to see something there that our New Testament doesn't show us. And by that I mean the New Testament is translating Greek, but the Old Testament is translating Hebrew. And it does it in a wonderful way. Our editors have done us a great favor by translating the Hebrew word for Lord differently. In the New Testament, the word kurios could mean master or it could mean Lord like Yahweh, the, the sovereign God that we know. But in the Old Testament, there's a distinction made. And Psalm 110 verse 1 makes that distinction. Here's what Jesus quotes. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Notice the two different ways that the word Lord there is notated. 
The first one, Lord, is capital L and then small caps, O-R-D. Whenever in your Bible, probably this is the way it works in your Bible, is whenever you have it that way, capital L, then small caps for the rest of it, that's referring to Yahweh. And it's written that way consistently throughout the Old Testament so that we'll know what the Hebrew word is there. That's Yahweh. But then look at the next one. The Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, now it's capital L, lowercase o-r-d. This is a different Hebrew word. This is the word Adon. Now, some scholars think that this, this is Adonai, but it isn't. I've, I looked at this, and I looked close at this because I want to make sure I got it right. Uh, my Lord, and the challenge there is my Lord in Hebrew is Adoni, and the E means my, so my Lord, my Adon. Some think that that means Adonai, but it doesn't. It means my Lord in the sense of master or my authority. And I, I remember when we were going through Matthew with Dr. Toussaint, we came across this verse, and I came up to Dr. Toussaint afterwards because uh, that's like the second closest thing to the Holy Spirit, if, you, if you're not sure. <laughs> so let's, let's ask Dr. Toussaint. And he's, he said, yes, you're right. So I'm right. <laughs> and I'm so glad I'm right. But here's, here's the point. You know, it, it would sort of be nice if it was Adonai, because then we could say that David was saying, Yahweh says to God, sit at my right hand. Though that would make a lot of sense, but for, for David to basically be saying Jesus is God or the Messiah is God, but that's not what he's saying. If you turn back to Mark, what David's point is and what Jesus' point is by quoting David, the Lord said to my Lord, meaning Yahweh said to my master, and then Jesus asks, David calls him Lord, or meaning master, in what sense is he his son? The thought there is your son or your descendant doesn't rule over you. You rule over him. In what sense is the Messiah, the son of David, going to rule over David? How does David submit to the Messiahship of his son? Now, we know the answer to that is because Jesus is God. But the point is not deity here. The point is authority. How in the world could great King David rank under the authority of his son? Answer, he's the Messiah. And a deeper answer, he's God in the flesh. It's a wonderful context because you remember at the beginning of, uh, uh, or at the end of Mark chapter 11, what was the question that the scribes and chief priests and the elders came to him? By what authority are you doing these things? Jesus has taken a long time to get to the implication of the answer uh, when, when, when David calls the Messiah my master it's clear that, that even David ranks under the authority of Christ and amazing and of course the, the crowd's delighted because now Jesus has stumped the, uh, the religious leaders they had no clue how to answer that Verse 38, in his teaching he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. 
And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Jesus basically leaves the temple, and if we compare this with Matthew's gospel, we see that Jesus is leaving the temple for the, for the last time. And as he does, as he leaves, he makes a comparison. He says, let me compare to you two people. First of all, there's the scribes, there's the religious leaders. Basically, they do what they do to be noticed. And the reality is their heart is kind of dark because they devour widows' houses and they will have a greater condemnation. And then he uses a widow, the very one that they devour, he uses a widow as an example. And he, he points out to the disciples, this widow has put in more than all the others. Not more as far as amount, but more as far as percentage. The percentage was 100%. She put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent, or actually less than a cent. Uh, what, what's less than a cent? You know what's less than a cent? When's the last time you've been to the gas station? <laughs> For years, I've wondered why the gas station will give their price as, you know, $2.49.99 or something. Have you noticed that? How do you have 99% of a cent? Well... I don't know, but the gas station has it. One time, one time I thought it'd be fun to walk in there and say, you know what, I want to buy 99% of a cent of gasoline. Because that's what you have on your sign. I've never done that, but I'm, I've wanted to do it. <laughs> because it's, it's deceiving. It's deceiving. Just, let's just go ahead and round it up to what it is. Well, this widow actually put in less than a cent. And Jesus said contrasts, look at verse 44, how many times the word all is used. They all, in fact, that's emphatic in the verse, they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned. And then we have the word all here again, but this word is actually different in Greek. This is the word halos, or whole. And Jesus uses that word clearly in the context here to refer back to verse 33 and what was before that referring to loving the Lord your God from your whole heart. So this woman, this, this woman that everyone else just kind of brushes aside, Jesus says, see that person? That is the person who is the model. Because, not because she gave all her money, but because all of her life, all of her heart, everything that she has is devoted to loving God. Let me ask you three questions. And I ask myself these same three because it's really easy with this great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength to make that merely intellectual and not in reality. Here are three questions. Do I strive to become like Christ or like Christians? Because the scribes did all they did to be noticed by people. And it's really easy for us as Christians to do all we do, basically, to be like other Christians. And it's really easy also in our heart to think, you know what? 
as long as I'm as good as Taylor, I'm pretty okay. I mean, Taylor's the standard. You're a little better than Taylor? Hey, that's even, that's even better. Taylor's not the standard. Wayne's not the standard. Nobody else is the standard but Christ. Second question, do I give my whole self to him? Heart, soul, mind, strength. Or do I just give what's necessary to keep up appearances? And finally, do my Bible reading, prayer, and other disciplines serve to draw me to him in love? Or are they merely to soothe my conscience that I'm spiritual? It takes guts to answer these honestly. And honestly, I and others, you as well, we fail at these. But you know what? The good news is that's okay. It's okay. Because God's grace gives us that chance every day to start over with him. The command to love God with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength is here because we need to hear it. Not because we've got it wired, but because we need to hear it. All right, well, we only went nine after. That's not bad. (laughs) Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Jesus' words in this text that take us back to the heart of the Old Testament, which is love. Loving you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourself in practical ways. Open our eyes this week that our love for you would not merely be that which we express with our words or even in our prayers, but there would be action to it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.